You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The Gifford Lectures have always taken as their project to, quote, promote and diffuse the study of natural theology in the widest sense of the term, end quote. And some of the best books to come out of that lecture series have tested just how wide that term can be. In 2018, N.T. Wright was the Gifford Lecturer, and his persistent question through his lectures aimed for that breadth. In what ways could a strong re-examination of history challenge the boundaries of and benefit the project of natural theology? And perhaps the second question is like unto the first. How have distorted notions of history distorted in turn the project called natural theology? The volume that came out of those inquiries is History and Eschatology, Jesus and the Promise of Natural Theology from Baylor University Press. And Christian Humanist Profiles is thrilled to have welcome N.T. Wright back to the show to talk about it. Tom, thank you for coming back aboard. Thank you. It's very good uh, to be with you again. And that was a very, very exciting thing that I did with the Giffords, and I'm glad they're published now so that people around the world can read them. I certainly did enjoy it. Uh, now, over the years, your books have taught me to do theology in terms of grand narratives. So I want to bring out this book's grand villain first. Uh, It's one we might have thought we'd buried long ago, but that's just what a grand villain would want us to think, no? So talk to us about the hidden work and the modern resurgence of Epicureanism. Yeah, well, that's really important. And I was alerted to this some years ago with a book by Stephen Greenblatt, the cultural critic and literature critic, when he, he had a book called The Swerve, I guess about 10 years or so ago, tracing the rise of Epicureanism in the modern world. And uh, for those who don't know, Epicurus, who was a a BC Greek philosopher, uh, he he basically was reacting against the kind of paganism that that said that we all had souls that were going to be tormented forever after our death unless we were very, very good, etc. And he said, no, no, once you understand how the universe is made, it's made out of atoms and they swerve around and they bump into each other, which is how you get new life forms. And they do it all by themselves. And the gods may exist, but if they do, they're a long way away. They're upstairs somewhere. They're quite happy as they are. They don't interfere in our world and we can't interfere with them. So prayer is useless. So the only thing to do is just to live your life as happily as you can, which probably means quietly. Don't do anything too rash and passionate because that only gets you into worse trouble, etc., etc. And by the way, when you die, uh, you dissolve completely. Everything about you just dissolves back into its constituent atoms. So there's nothing left. So there is quite literally nothing to be afraid of when you die. So that's Epicureanism, ancient version. The great prophet of Epicureanism was a man called Lucretius in the first century BC, who wrote an amazing Latin poem, one of the great Latin poems, along with Virgil and Horace and Ovid and people like that. Lucretius expounded the system um, uh, of Epicureanism in several books, uh, uh, making up this great big poem. And uh, that was always, I mean, it's one of the really interesting things about it. It was always an elite philosophy because the kind of people who could embrace it tended to be well off. 
they tended to have nice farms and vineyards so that they could retire from public life and try to live this happy life away from the hurly-burly of the rest of the world. In other words, rather imitating um, what the theory said that the gods themselves did. Um, so Epicureanism was, was uh, uh, an elite philosophy that was not taken up by very many in consequence. The, the dominant philosophy in the uh, time of Jesus, at any rate, in the Greco-Roman world was uh, some form of stoicism um, uh, or, or just collapsing into cynicism that we're just not quite sure uh, and we can't know, etc. Uh, hello, you getting that? Oh, yes, I'm hearing you quite well. Oh, so, sorry. There's, there's a little bleep bleep going on. I don't know, maybe somebody else trying to call my phone. I hope it's not interrupting you. Anyway, let me just start that again. So in the modern world, um, the, the work of Lucretius had been lost for many centuries, but a version of it was, a, a copy of it was found um, by a, a, an enterprising monk in 1417, um, exactly 100 years before Luther nailed his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Um, and, and this uh, monk published um, Lucretius, and many people in the late medieval period faced the same question as Epicurus had done, namely, um, we are being told now by the church that um, unless we are absolute saints, then we're all going to face a long and very uncomfortable and painful time after life, either in hell or in purgatory. And so the modern proponents of Lucretius um, and hence of Epicureanism started to say, no, no, that's, that's entirely wrong. The world just makes itself and the gods are out of the question. And when we die, we die and that's it. Um, and that became quite popular with many philosophers. And it was in that matrix that uh, this is cutting a long story very short, that the, the movement we know as deism, which says, well, maybe God did make the world and maybe there is only one God, but he's now out of the process and he doesn't now interfere. That's a kind of a, an attempt to compromise between Epicureanism and some forms of, of, of a kind of a loose liberal Christianity. Um, uh, but but different uh, versions of these became very popular in the 17th and 18th century in Europe, and particularly after all the wars of religion that followed at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, a lot of people felt uh, about global politics, if you like, like the Epicureans felt about theology in general, that there's far too much violence going on here, and it'd be much better if we just gave up the idea that we've got to fight each other over which God we believe in or which version of Christianity we believe in, and just pursued a nice peaceful course and so that was one of the main drivers of the movement we call the enlightenment and of the countries that were most affected by the enlightenment i mean all of europe was in various ways but germany france britain particularly scotland and then particularly america and i mean famously thomas jefferson um named conjure with said at one point i am an epicurean i mean to be fair he was many other things as well but there was that sense um that this will get us the separate of church and state. It will mean that religion is a, is a private matter. If you want to worship this distant God, that's up to you. But we're going to run the world the way we want to run it, because that's how, according to Epicureanism, which was now very popular in the scientific community in the, uh, in the 18th century, long before Charles Darwin, um, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was an Epicurean living in Lichfield in Britain. And he argued strongly that life forms, animals and plants and so on, make themselves and develop themselves without outside interference. And so that, that's, that's philosophically a mainstream position, at least 100 years before Charles Darwin himself. 
So and what we think of as Darwinism is, is a form of Epicureanism as applied to biology, etc. Now, that doesn't mean that species do not evolve. I actually believe that some forms of evolution are undoubtedly true. Um, it's just that evolutionism, the idea that that's how everything happens and that God must be out of the process all along, that's an ideological belief which many, many people today, and this is the crunch of this, uh, naming and shaming the villain, as you say, um, many people today think that what uh, they now believe, namely that if there is a God, he's a long way away, and he probably doesn't exist anyway, that this is a proof from modern science. And people imagine that modern science, and they always reference Charles Darwin in this process, has disproved God, has disproved religion, or at the best has shown that the only safe religion is a private hobby um, well away from public life. And that's a widely pervasive belief today. And so I've tried to name and shame that by saying, actually, no, all we've done in the modern world in that respect is to add a few scientific footnotes to an ancient worldview. But actually, there aren't that many worldviews around and they come and go. And this is an ancient one, Epicureanism. And it actually has some serious things wrong with it. And so now let's go at it. And particularly then from the point of view of history. So um, I had great fun with uh, lining all that stuff up in the first two chapters of the Gifford Lectures, I found it fascinating to do that research and to see how from the, particularly the 17th century to the present day, um, the rise of Epicureanism is such that as, as one modern philosopher, Catherine Wilson, who teaches at York University, she says, um, it, it seems strange to us because when we describe Epicureanism, um, many people think, but, but surely this is just what we all accept as true. In other words, this has got so much into the bloodstream of what we call the modern Western world, that people don't even realize that this is in fact one option among others, and that there are serious critiques that have been leveled against it. So there you are, that's about as brief as I can do it, but that, that's naming and shaming the villain of this story. Well done, well done. Well, one place where this villain has uh, certainly influenced the inquiry uh, is in the project of natural theology itself. So uh, what are a few of the assumptions that uh, inform uh, natural theology in particular? So, I mean, you talk about Epicurean... Epicurea, let me try that again. Yeah. You talk about Epicureanism <laughs> as something that we assume rather than question. How, how do those assumptions shape the project that we call natural theology? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the project of natural theology has been going a very long time because um, ancient philosophers wondered if you could look at the world the way it is and reason your way up to God. And that was quite a common project. And in the Old Testament, um, you have... Um, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. You have one of the Psalms saying the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. In other words, there are ways in which um, you can look at the world and say, wow, we see the hand of God in this. And so uh, this isn't a new question. Philosophers and theologians have, have um, bumped their heads up against this um, over many, many years. Thomas Aquinas, famously in the Middle Ages, um, argued for a form of natural theology, um, not, to, not to say everything that the Christian theologian would want to say, but to say quite a lot of things, particularly when in dialogue with unbelief. Because if you're talking with an unbeliever, it's no good saying, well, we have this thing called the Bible, and the Bible is true, therefore what the Bible says goes, because the unbeliever will say, well, how do I know on other grounds? And that, that's why natural theology comes to be what it is. 
But then in the 18th century particularly, and then on into the 19th, which was when the Gifford Lectures were founded in the late 19th century, um, the, quest, the way the question was being raised was very strongly influenced by this movement, either to deism or to Epicureanism, so that it was as though, and one of the key figures here is the German philosopher Lessing in the late 18th century, um, for whom there was, in his words, a broad, ugly ditch between the necessary truths of reason and the contingent truths of history, so that actually um, you might want to get to the real truth about the world, which he called the, the necessary truths of reason. But if you just looked at the world, particularly uh, things that happened in the world, i.e. in history, then you would never be able to leap across that ditch. And so natural theology has then been seen as an attempt to push back against that, but to say, and by the way, we aren't allowed to use the Bible and we aren't allowed to mention Jesus. We aren't allowed to talk about miracles because we've somehow got to make this argument with one and a half hands tied, tied behind our back. And so many people have tried to do just that. And the result of that, sadly, is that many Christian theologians who want to do some form of natural theology because they believe in the goodness of cre and God-givenness of creation have tried to discover, as it were, to discover God first, perhaps one should say to discover God the Father first, and only when they've sketched a picture of God the Father on the basis of the world the way it is, do they then say, now, let's suppose Jesus is God's Son, how do we work that out? And the problem with that is that the New Testament tells us that we ought to do it exactly the other way around. The New Testament says, John's Gospel says, and no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And Paul says in Colossians, that he, that's Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, you can't see God, but when you look at Jesus, and of course already by Paul's day, this is um, the, the, the Jesus who they knew had lived and walked and talked and died and been raised a few years before, in other words, the Jesus of history in that sense, that then and only then do you really know who God is. So the question then is, is the, <laughs> is the quest for Jesus which is, of course, a phrase in itself, is that or is that not part of natural theology? And I have argued in this book that it should be because if Jesus really was a fully-on human being, as we say, as we say he was, then he is susceptible to historical study like anyone else. And as we do that historical study, maybe we might see what the meaning of the word God was all about. So, that's a, so the, the, the point that I really want to make on this, I was having a debate with a, a colleague in Oxford just recently about this, is that I'm not saying that natural theology started in the 18th or 19th century. I am saying that the prevailing philosophical mood of the time, the Epicureanism particularly, shaped the way that the natural theology question was being asked and has shaped it in an unhelpful way by appearing to drive a wedge between the things we know about the world and the things that we might think about God. A lot of this, of course, goes back to the fact that the Jewish matrix of early Christianity, the way Jews thought about God and the world in the first century, um, has been forgotten if it's even been known. And so I spent some time in this book trying to recover the way that Jewish worldview worked. So, Yeah, let's, let's begin with one of those uh, critiques, because one particular outgrowth of Epicurean assumptions in biblical studies, as you're telling the story here, is the so-called end-of-the-world Judaism of Albert mm, Schweitzer's mm, work, mm, uh, mm. and the following scholarship, really. So what are some of the fundamental problems with the end-of-the-world picture yeah. that Schweitzer paints? 
historically yeah. speaking. And, and what alternative do you propose as we yeah. take on the work of this history? Right. Well, uh, I am primarily a first century historian. I'm sitting here in my study in Oxford looking at shelf upon shelf upon shelf of books about the first century in the classical world and the Jewish world. And that's where I feel at home. That's where I, I kind of wallow around. Um, and the, the, the thing about Schweitzer's theory, which was promulgated at the end of the 19th century by Albert Schweitzer and uh, his, his, various, his various colleagues, but um, uh, particularly Johannes Weiss, um, to two of them. They were both young men, and they both uh, had this idea that Jewish apocalyptic literature uh, was all about the end of the world. Where did they get that idea from? It wasn't from the study of Jewish literature itself, because had they looked closely at the book of Enoch, say, which now there's a massive amount of stuff been done on, had they read Josephus, the Jewish historian, carefully, had they looked at a book that we call Fourth Ezra, um, I mean, they did look at it, but they clearly didn't contextualize it properly, didn't understand how it worked. They were assuming that language about say, the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from heaven and so on, was about the literal, concrete end of the space-time universe. But had they then gone back to the Old Testament, which those books are constantly echoing, they'd have found that it wasn't like that at all. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, uh, at one point says that uh, if Israel doesn't repent and Israel doesn't look like repenting in Jeremiah's day, then the whole creation is going back to being without form and void, uh, as in Genesis 1, um, tohu abohu in Hebrew. Um, and actually, uh, people say, well, what did Jeremiah mean by that? And the answer is Jeremiah worried for many decades that he might be a false prophet, not because the world hadn't ended, but because Jerusalem and the temple had not yet been destroyed. And when they were, then he was demonstrated to be a true prophet because, and this is the key to it all, in the Jewish world, as actually with parallels in many uh, non-Jewish ancient systems, a temple, and the Jews certainly believed this about the temple in Jerusalem, was the place where heaven and earth were held together. It was the, the microcosmos, the little world, which said, this is where heaven and earth come together, which is what God always wanted and what God is finally going to do when he rescues the present creation. So that the idea of heaven and earth being destroyed is uh, a Jewish way of talking about the collapse, not of the space-time order, but of the temple in Jerusalem. And once you grasp that, all sorts of passages in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in the other prophets, in the Psalms, start to make a whole lot more sense. And it's clear then when we come forward to the time of Jesus that in Mark 13 and parallels, when Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, he is using this so-called apocalyptic uh, uh, writing or speaking, not in order to predict the end of the space-time universe. That's not something that contemporary Jews at the time were thinking about, were interested in, but to predict the collapse of the, the entire present system. And when he talks about, you know, go back to Isaiah 13, and the sun is going to be darkened and the moon will not give its light, etc., etc. But um, actually, uh, Isaiah 13 is manifestly talking about the fall of Babylon, and it's not talking about something that you'd see with a telescope looking up at the sky. Um, so uh, Schweitzer and Weiss, you then have to say, so why did they think 
that this actual end of the world was the right way to go? And the answer was they were late 19th century Germans who were fed up with Hegel and the Hegelian developmental schemes that had been so popular in Germany, where people really thought that the world was just getting better and better under its own steam. It was trundling along. The Hegelian dialectic was working and that the kingdom of God was gradually coming bit by bit. And you just had to stick with the nice bourgeois German society, go to church on Sundays and the kingdom of God would gradually emerge. Now, plenty of people in the late 19th and early 20th century could see that that was nonsense and could see that there was huge violence and disruption just round the corner, as indeed there was. But with Schweitzer particularly, and this is one of the, uh, I think, particularly original contributions of my lectures, I've traced the links between Schweitzer and uh, Richard Wagner, the great musical composer. Schweitzer was a wonderful musician, and he thought that the two greatest musicians of all time were J.S. Bach and Richard Wagner. And so in his book on Bach, he also talks a lot about Wagner, and he went to see the ring cycle again and again and again in Bayreuth and became friendly with the Wagner family. And the ring cycle is, of course, all about, as it says, the great truth that everything ends. And, and the, 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 the twilight of the gods, everything comes crashing down and you're left with a very different sort of world at the end of it. And uh, um, so I think what was going on was that Schweitzer and Weiss were eager to find a way of saying no to German um, developmental Hegelianism and all its social and cultural and religious consequences. And so they saw in Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom something which said, God is going to do a new thing, but they construed that in terms of the end of the space-time universe, because they just weren't tuned in to how Jewish apocalyptic writing actually works. Very interesting that the real experts on apocalyptic today, people like my former colleague Chris Rowland here in Oxford, um, they will say quite, or John Collins in Yale, they will say quite categorically no, this isn't about the end of the space-time universe. This is about huge socio-political disruption and, and major conflagration of Rome or Jerusalem or, or whichever it is. The trouble is that much New Testament scholarship and much theology ever since has thought, oh, well, there we are. The early Christians and Jesus himself expected the end of the world and it didn't happen. So they were wrong about that. So they're probably wrong about a lot of other things as well. And that played into this disruptive Epicureanism, which says, um, if there is going to be a kingdom in heaven, it can't have anything to do with this world because there is a great gulf between this world and the gods. So we'll have to destroy this world in order to have anything that might be a kingdom of heaven. And that whole construct and a whole way of thought and life and indeed music that went with it needs to be confronted in terms of the actual Jewish meaning of the scriptures and particularly with what Jesus of Nazareth did and said in the context of those scriptures. Again, sorry, these are very long answers, but these are great questions, and you're getting a, a short version of the Gifford Lectures. Oh, that's, fa- that's as, great. As that's fast great. as I can do it. Good. Now, Good. I, I've got a question that might not be within the scope of your research, uh, but when I think of uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle, I think of it as being very much uh, influenced by the, the verse Edda or the poetic Edda, uh, which has a oh, kind right. of yeah. end of the world and then a rebirth of Balder. And I think of that as sort yep, of a yep. Christianized version of, uh, you know, Norse yep. mythology. Have, have I yep, been yep, infected yep. by Epicureanism no, no, unawares? No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, 
Wagner was Wagner was pulling together. Uh, thing. One of the extraordinary things about Wagner, of course, is he wrote his own libretti, which which most people never did. Most people got somebody else to do the libretto, and then they wrote the music, uh, like Mozart did, or, or, or Puccini, or whoever. But uh, but Wagner wrote his own thing because for him it was a complete work of art. And yes, he was pulling together those wonderful Nordic epics, um, which he saw as as contributing to the real German identity of this great Germany that he so much believed in. And uh, so he's trying to work out a new mythology for the 19th century. And of course, you have to remember that both Schweitzer and Wagner were heavily influenced by Nietzsche. Even though Wagner and Nietzsche had a falling out, there is still this great, um, almost nihilistic impulse to say no as loudly as possible to the idea that the world is just getting better and better and all you have to do is get on board. Um, and of course, there are many people today who are still reacting against that Hegelian optimism and who invoke the word apocalyptic as a way of doing that. Um, the trouble is, unless we define rather carefully what we mean by the word apocalyptic, or indeed eschatology, um, then we get into muddles because people think we mean one thing when we may mean something slightly different. So that's why I have a whole chapter of the Giffords basically analyzing, teasing out what those two words, eschatology and apocalyptic, have meant to different people in the past in order to be sure that when the lectures then move forward, we're um, not only on safe historical ground, but um, on uh, unambiguous ground in terms of what we're actually talking about. Very good. Well, another distortion of apocalyptic that you dig into in some detail is the sort of psychological allegory apocalyptic method. And your central figure here is not Schweitzer, but Bultmann. So talk to our listeners a little bit about the fundamental problems with turning apocalyptic into a psychological phenomenon rather than a political one. Yeah, I think I think for Bultmann, um, our word psychological is certainly part of what he was on about. But I think psychology has developed a long way since the heyday of Bultmann in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And, and for him, uh, he used the word eschatological to refer to something which is part psychology and part what we might call spirituality and part what we might call existentialism. That is to say that faced with the world which seems to be a closed system with, um, uh, you know, the, the closed system of cause and effect that, that we, we, it's all determined and we can't break out of it. And then many people in Bultmann's day were saying that about the political sphere as well. And Bultmann is reacting, particularly in his Giffords, which were also called history and eschatology, um, which is why I chose that title, of course. Um, he's reacting against the determinist schemes, what he called the historicist schemes, which said, for instance, that God has raised up the German nation and that the German nation is now the um, flag waver for the whole new culture which is to emerge. And Bultmann is saying, no, absolutely not. Um, we are free people. God makes us free in Jesus Christ. And we have to choose every day we have to choose not to be determined, not to be squeezed into shape by the way the world wants us to be. And, and we have to determine to live differently. And so for Bultmann, the resurrection was not only it didn't happen, but it was unnecessary because what you had to have instead was the cross as a symbol of God saying no to um, the kind of deterministic historical process. And God is saying, we're stopping all that, uh, creating a new space. And history has now come to an end in a different sense. And we're no, because by history there, Bultmann meant this idea of 
history blindly going, crunching ahead, doing its own thing, no matter what. And so for Bultmann, it was a it was a call for human responsibility, a call for human decision, um, for humans not to be feeling that they were being squeezed into this or that political or social or personal mode. And, and so it was it was a commitment of faith. And I think for Bultmann, there was genuinely a sense of the presence and call of Jesus, even though for Bultmann, he was so bothered about all the historical problems that his own reconstruction of Jesus was very shaky and one-sided and, and bitty. Um, and so for him, it's really almost an uncaused faith. It's faith in faith, almost. I mean, that's that's not quite right, but um, that's what it feels like often when we're reading Bultmann. And, and so my criticism of Bultmann is really that he's claiming constantly to be standing on the ground of history. He's supposedly in the historical critical method, but it's 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 90% criticism and only 10% history. Um, that there's there's very little actual awareness of how particularly the Jewish world of Jesus' day worked. And of course, that is because. Bultmann, as a good Lutheran, was schooled in the idea that Judaism was all about justification by works and that the Christian gospel is all about justification by faith. So that therefore, if you're doing a historical analysis of the origins of Christianity, you don't want to go near Judaism because that's um, all that works righteousness stuff. So he and his colleagues didn't want to put Jesus and Paul into their Jewish world. Um, uh, uh, because they wanted to say Jesus escaped from the Jewish world. And so they're kind of labeling that Jewish world itself as a world of historicist um, determinism in order that Jesus should then lead us out of it. And there are so many muddles in there that it takes quite a long time to lay them all out and to disabuse the reader of them and to sketch what the alternative is. But the, the worrying thing to me, you know, is that for, for a generation from really the 20s through to the 50s, Bultmann was the leading guru. When I was studying in the 60s, we all had to read Bultmann. Um, but actually, his historical pro, um, proposals, as well as his theological proposals, were never that good. And most of the key ones have long since been quietly abandoned by most New Testament scholars, like his proposal for a pre-Christian Gnosticism, for instance, which nobody today believes. Well, there may be one or two, but virtually nobody. Um, so, so there are huge problems there. And you'll notice that Baylor University Press has republished Bultmann's Giffords side by side with mine with a very similar looking cover which is kind of clever. Um, and I think what they're saying surreptitiously is, well, here is Bultmann, and guess what? 60 years later, here's an answer to Bultmann. And so I think that, that there's a kind of a twinkle in the eye of the man who used to edit Baylor University Press when he set all that up. Very good, very good. I want to turn in and talk about how some of these historical corrections uh, come to bear on biblical text. Now, you know, I'll... I'll I hope that I'm bringing you some good news to say that when I was in seminary 20 years ago, uh, you know, we read yeah. our John J. Collins and we read First Enoch and we read yeah, yeah, the Dead yeah, Sea yeah, Scrolls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. as you well know, these lessons don't seem to slow down people who think that Paul in particular was fundamentally mistaken, that Paul believed that, you know, the termination of the space-time universe was going to happen in his own lifetime. But this book lays out some clues uh, what can a deliberate reader find in Paul and his work and other New Testament texts uh, that indicate that they are, in fact, operating in an apocalyptic schema more akin to John Collins than to Richard Wagner? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question. And I know that there are some. Uh, I was talking to a young man here in Oxford who was doing an essay on Paul the other day, and he'd been reading, I think, Paula Fredrickson's book, in which she says again and again, of course, Paul thought the world was going to end any moment, and therefore dot, dot, dot. And, and, and people and repeat to... that as if it hasn't I know, been challenged. I I, it it, I it really does I irritate me. <laughs> I know, I know. And actually... Along with the Giffords, I published a long lecture, a long article um, uh, in in one of the theological periodicals, a periodical called Early Christianity. So, if any of your listeners want to look that up, um, and, and that is on um, basically refuting the idea of the delay of the parousia, so-called, because it has had a long a long shelf life, and it's a modern myth. Um, and it's a modern myth which serves particular interests because people embrace it when they want to be able to say they are the early Christians thought this crazy stuff and we now know they were wrong. And that then enables us to distance ourselves from any aspects of what they teach, which we don't like, whether it's their eschatology or their sexual ethics or whatever it may be. So um, I, I want to say take Paul as the prime example. Um, Paul is quite clear that God is going to redeem and remake the whole cosmos. Romans 8 is one of the climactic passages in Paul, and it's about the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. But Paul puts no time limit on that. He, he just says that's what God is going to do one day. And it's very interesting that in the third and fourth um, Christian generations and through to the late second century, there are many Christian leaders who, and teachers who talk about the coming of Jesus, but they aren't at all bothered that it hasn't happened yet. The only place we find a slight worry is in somebody being quoted in Second Peter chapter 3, saying, hang on, where's the promise of his coming, etc. But that stands out as being very unusual, because when you go to Clement and Ignatius, when you go to Polycarp, when you go to Arrhenius and Tertullian and Origen, they all know that Jesus is going to come back and that it might happen at any time. But nobody says, uh, oh, dear, there was that big hiccup because it was supposed to happen within a generation and it didn't. And the answer is that's because the early Christians knew very well that the within a generation statements were not about the return of Jesus. They were about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, there are some texts which are easier to have that, to see that in than others. But just to go to Paul. In the beginning of Romans, um, a majestic statement at the start of Romans that the gospel is about the Son of God descended from the seed of David, designated Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Messiah, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, when you take that saying, which is a kind of a very, very early Christian formula, which Paul is quoting and perhaps developing, and put it alongside Mark 9.1, one of the famous passages in the Gospels, where Jesus says there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power, you realize that actually, if you'd asked Paul or Mark to comment on each other's statements, Mark would say of what Paul says, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that inaugurated the kingdom of God with power. And Paul would say the same. Yeah, I'm saying what Jesus said there in Mark 9.1. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which is an allusion to Daniel 7. And it's Daniel 7 that stands at the heart, of course, of Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21. And to, to, to go to there and then back to Paul just very quickly. In, those, in, in Matthew and Luke, when Caiaphas the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? 
Jesus says in various forms, he says yes, but then he says, and from now on, one of them has ap arti in the Greek, which means f- from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the, uh, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a combination of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. And in other words, this is not saying that within a generation, Caiaphas will look out of the window and see Jesus floating down on the cloud. And by the way, um, that's the signal for the end of the space-time universe. That's nothing whatever to do with that. Daniel 7 is all about the ascension of the anointed king representing Israel to the right hand of God, i.e. to the place of sovereignty over the created order. And again, the one who sits there in heaven is the one who is sovereign on earth. Farewell to Epicureanism. Think Jewishly. So now back to Paul. When Paul talks about uh, the day of the Lord, uh, for instance, in Second Thessalonians, he says, please don't be alarmed if you get a letter purporting to be from us saying that the day of the Lord has come, because there are various things that have got to happen first, and then certain events will take place. Now, if the day of the Lord meant the collapse of the space-time universe, it's pretty obvious that the Thessalonians would not have expected to hear about this great event through the Roman postal service, uh, somebody bringing them a letter, somebody coming in on a boat Hard to send a letter in those circumstances. Well, exactly, exactly. (laughs) In other words, they would have noticed. So it's quite clear that when Paul talks about the day of the Lord, he doesn't mean the end of the space. He's like Jeremiah. He means the great act of destruction by which the great Satan, the great people that have opposed the people of God are themselves being overthrown. Now, I think if Paul had lived to witness the events of AD 69 and 70, he would say, that's what I was talking about. Jerusalem falls, but at the same time, there is the year of the four emperors in Rome, where Rome goes into convulsions, and people from all over the the Roman Empire are trying their hand at being emperor and then being killed or, or assassinated or whatever. And I think Paul would say... This is what we were talking about, and it's happened within a generation of Jesus. That doesn't mean, against the so-called preterists, that then everything that is to happen happened in AD 70. You know, there are some people who say, well, that was the parousia. That was the end of all things. That was the new heavens and new earth arriving, if only we had eyes to see. And I want to say, no, that, that's, that's rubbish. The, 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 the scenario um, sketched in Revelation 21 and 22 hasn't happened yet. The scenario sketched in Romans 8 hasn't happened yet. But something happened with Jesus' death and resurrection, and something then happened in AD 69-70, which the early Christians right saw as the inauguration, the, the complex events which inaugurated the new world which God was bringing into being, the world over which Jesus is already sovereign. Uh, although, of course, that raises other questions, that the way his sovereignty works out is not through sending in the tanks and blasting all opposition out of the way, but um, sending in the poor and the meek and the mourners and the hungry for justice people, as the Sermon on the Mount says. So anyway, I think the, the idea of Paul or Jesus believing in the literal end of the world is a modern myth which is still regularly used to say milks by all sorts of people for their own ends, but it's a myth and on historical grounds, it needs to be got rid of. Very good. The New Testament is not occasionally or incidentally, but pervasively apocalyptic. And therefore the symbols and narratives surrounding Sabbath and temple take on a very precise character in this grand story of Israel. And Mm. and the second Mm. half of this book really digs into this. Uh, we're not yeah. going to be able to reproduce all of it here, and besides that, our listeners need to go out and buy your book. <laughs> so talk Absolutely. about just a couple of New Testament passages 
on those symbols, Sabbath, temple, yeah, that yeah, come to yeah. light when we attend to their when we attend to their place as quote forward looking symbols end quote. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that that's great. I mean. Um, this was quite new to me some years ago when I was first researching Sabbath and realized that some Jewish writers, I think of John Levinson in Harvard, for instance, have been saying for years, and I and others just hadn't picked it up, that for many, many Jews in the time of Jesus and right through to today, the Sabbath every week is an advance foretaste of the ultimate kingdom of God, the ultimate new age, so that every week when you go into Shabbat, you are actually doing some inaugurated eschatology, which is why one of the rabbis of, of the time before Jesus, Shammai, is reported to have said that you shouldn't even kill a fly on the Sabbath because in the new age, all species will live in harmony, as it says in Isaiah 11 and so on. So um, the, 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 the problem that many people have found in, our, in this last generation is how to understand inaugurated eschatology. How can the kingdom be both now and not yet? And this is where I want to say, actually, Jewish thought and practice at the time could accommodate that very easily because that's what happened every Sabbath. The Sabbath was now. Um, the, 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 the New Age was now. We're living it in the Sabbath. That's why the Sabbath is such a day of joy. Um, and, and to turn it to, you know, so many Christians have said, oh, the Sabbath was this legalistic thing where they had to do X, Y, and Z, and they weren't allowed to do A, B, and C, and they all sort of suffered under this legalistic regime, which is a reflection, I think, of medieval Christianity rather than of ancient Judaism or modern Judaism. Um, but but, but but, uh, and, but this is where in the Gospels we see Jesus saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is starting right now. In other words, the new age begins here. But as I've often said, and I've used different images depending on which city I'm in, but if, if you're in America, I often say you don't put up signs saying this way to New York in the middle of Times Square because you're already there. So you no longer observe the Jewish Shabbat because the kingdom of God is being inaugurated. Jesus himself is, if you like, the Sabbath in person. That's why he says, come to me all who labor and I will give you rest. In other words, if you come to be one of my people, you are a, a perpetual Sabbath person. Um, and, and this is why in the New Testament, every time you get a summary of the Ten Commandments, in Paul, for instance, um, they summarize, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, or honor your father and mother, etc. The Sabbath always drops out. And why is that? And the answer is because we're now living in the new age to which the Sabbaths were forward-pointing signposts. And then the same is true of the temple, that and many people have argued this, and I, I think I first met it through uh, the work of John Walton in Wheaton College, the Old Testament scholar in Wheaton. But I've met it in many others since then, and I write, write this up in Giffords chapter 5. Um, the, 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 when God made heaven and earth, uh, something that I mentioned before about Jewish apocalyptic, heaven and earth were made for one another. And after the debacle of Genesis 3 and then the Tower of Babel, which is a kind of an attempt to pull heaven and earth together by human efforts alone, um, to which God responds with a laugh and, and, you know, that's enough of that. And then he calls Abraham and Abraham's family are to be the people in whose midst God comes to dwell. Hence, the exodus results in the construction of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is a small working model of new creation. It's a little 
spot, a tent, in which heaven and earth dangerously come together. And then Solomon's temple in Jerusalem is constructed precisely on that model, which is why then when Jesus himself comes, and with this we segue into John's gospel, John is full of temple imagery, all focusing on Jesus himself. The word became flesh and tabernacled. The Greek is eskenosen. He pitched his tent in our midst, and we glanced or glimpsed at his glory. In other words, when you're with Jesus, when you see Jesus, you are seeing the glory of God, even if that wasn't the way you expected to see it. So the glory is revealed in Jesus, not now in the temple. So in John chapter, well, at the end of John chapter 1, when Jesus talks about Jacob's ladder, that's a temple image, the angels of God coming and going upon the Son of Man. But then in John 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he then refers to the temple of his body and says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. And the alert reader of John's gospel realizes that Jesus is claiming all the way through that he is the place where and the means by which heaven and earth come together. He is inaugurating, in other words, a new creation, which is not about bricks and mortar, not about building a new shrine in in physical Jerusalem, but about a human community in which the living God will come to dwell. And that's, that's a wonderful promise, which I think many Christians hear the language of temple and they think of it just as a distant metaphor. But in the first century, for a Jew, you can't have anything more vivid than the idea of the temple as this place where heaven and earth come together. And Jesus is saying that in himself and then by the Spirit in the church, then this is how heaven and earth come together as the promise of what God is is going to do in the end, to bring heaven and earth together as one, which is what Romans 8, um, Revelation 21, 22 are all about. So those two great symbols, Sabbath and temple, uh, come rushing through into the New Testament with this vivid, new, Jesus-shaped meaning. And it seems to me that gives us a matrix for talking in a quite different mode about creation and new creation, and hence, at last, (laughs) about natural theology itself. This is good. I, I, I think one of the reasons I was so ready to receive these ideas is because, once again, uh, my professors, who uh, you know, to whom I always owe a debt of gratitude, had us right. read uh, both Sinai and Zion and Creation to Persistence of oh, Evil really? by yeah, yeah, yeah. John Levinson, okay, Levinson back in yes, the... Yes. Back in the days of my seminary classes, oh, so you 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 were so you were so lucky. Nobody ever told me to do that, and I wish they had. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about natural theology here at the end. If we allow yeah, ourselves yeah. to think apocalyptically, setting aside the ways of the Epicureans, we can see yeah. that quote resurrection redeems and retrieves and now firmly establishes the goodness yeah. of the original creation. End quote. Yeah. When we proceed from that starting assertion rather than from a bifurcation of the world into material and spiritual, what differences can emerge and why are they good differences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. I mean, when you when you said just said what you did, that's really, really important because so many Christians in the 19th and 20th century in the Western world, faced with Epicureanism, with people who say, if there are gods that are a long way away and they don't get evolved, 
so many Christians have reached for Plato. And the Platonic solution is to say, oh, well, maybe God is a long way away, but I have this thing called a soul, and this soul really belongs at home with God, and one day I hope it'll be going back there. And so I just have to cultivate it in the moment and uh, at the present, and then all will be well eventually. And I've said to people again and again, if you go to the first century looking for somebody who says that, the man you're after is Plutarch, who's a middle Platonist, who's a great writer, a great philosopher, a biographer, etc., etc. But he's not a Jew, he's not a Christian, he's a pagan. That's a pagan idea which involves the downgrading of the present material universe, something no good Jew ever did and no good Christian ever ought to do. So that then, as a Christian, looking at the resurrection of Jesus, that is not about escaping this world and going to heaven. So many Christians imagine that's what the resurrection is about. It's the exact opposite. It's the reaffirmation of the goodness of the created order. And with that reaffirmation, (coughs) excuse me, goes the reaffirmation that the questions raised from within the the, the good creation were the right questions to ask. In other words, when people looked at the world and said, is there a powerful creator behind all this? The resurrection says, yes, absolutely. That was the right question to ask. And the answer is yes. And uh, then people look at the world and say, is there a God of justice behind this world? Because we feel the, the need for justice uh, very deeply. The resurrection says, yes, it may not take the form you initially expect, and you may have to wait for it, etc. But there is a God who is putting the world right. And, and when we look at Jesus, we see that. So, so basically, that that's the heart of it for me. Um, and when we approach it the way that I've tried to do, it's all about the mode of knowing. How do we actually know any of this? And part of the problem with Epicureanism, ancient and modern, is that it, it tries to get um, certain factual knowledge by screening out of the equation a lot of things about what make us genuinely human, like music and love and things like that, which um, seem to the so-called scientific mind to be irrelevant, but actually are hugely important for understanding the whole of reality. And when we put all those back together again, then there is what I and others have called the epistemology of love, which reaches out and says, we want to understand the whole of all of this. And then the resurrection comes to us as, as the gift of God to say, here is my gift of new creation, which calls out from us an answering grateful love in which we say, ah, this is actually not just believable, but as C.S. Lewis said, in the light of this, I can see everything else as well. And then natural theology starts to make sense, not as a freestanding enterprise, but as part of a total understanding of God and the world, focused now on Jesus and on history. And I I know that's a big ask, but um, this is what I've tried to argue. Well, it is an ambitious book, to be sure. I have a quick (laughs) follow-up. When it comes to Second Temple era uh, Jewish thought, um, where would you situate the wisdom of Solomon in all of that? Because it seems to be a text oh, that question. that posits a, a an immaterial soul that separates from the body at death, very different from Daniel's version, very different from yeah. the vision that you're laying out here. Uh, yeah. I mean, is it uh, you know 
Where does it fit in that big Jewish picture? Yeah, I'm fascinated by the wisdom of Solomon because there are some bits of it which are very close to Paul and other early Christians. Uh, and the great retelling of the Exodus story in the second half of that book is, is a wonderful retrieval of Exodus in order to make certain theological and political points at the time. And the opening chapters of the book are a robust rebuttal of precisely ancient Epicureanism, the people who say, once we kill you, that's the end. So we're going to kill you and then you'll be out of our way forever. You won't cause us any more trouble. At the same time, Wisdom of Solomon brings together quite a bit of ancient Jewish thought with some Stoic ideas, but also with some Platonic ideas. And so it's, it's a rich and rather odd mixture. And in some, I mean, I, I have argued in great detail in various places that Wisdom of Solomon 3, 4, and 5 really does envisage the resurrection of the body. That, you know, the famous passage at the start of Wisdom 3, the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and there shall no torment touch them because they are at peace. Um, many Christians have taken that and even set it to music in in the quest for uh, an ordinary going to heaven uh, soteriology that the soul has left the body and it's gone upstairs to god and it, that's the end of the story but that's not the end of the story for wisdom of solomon because a few verses later those guys who we thought we would got rid of they're coming back and what's more they're going to be sitting in judgment over the wicked pagans who had killed them <clears throat> that's a theology of resurrection which does look back to daniel but then as you say the image then comes back of a soul and uh, which the material body is pressing down on this immortal soul and so on. Um, and the figure of wisdom in, in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 7 and 8 is, is derived from Proverbs but goes in some different directions. So you really need to do a whole commentary on the whole book. Um, but I want to say there's a lot of very genuine Old Testament-based Jewish insight there. I think it's probably dated around the same time as Paul, and we can see the author wrestling with some of the same questions as Paul, very close parallels with Romans 9, for instance. But at the same time, uh, it's fascinating the way in which certain Stoic ideas come through and certain Platonic ideas in a way in which they never do with Paul, uh, and, and which is one of the remarkable things about Paul, apart from anything else. Certainly, certainly. So would you see that passage in Wisdom of Solomon that you just narrated as a kind of uh, influence or at least a parallel to the witnesses in white robes in the, the middle chapters of uh, the New Testament apocalypse? <laughs> uh, quite possibly. I mean, it, it's very curious because in the book we call Revelation, the Revelation of St. John the Divine, um, th there are several oddities like the souls under the altar in uh, Revelation 6 who are saying, how long, O Lord, how long? Yeah, and those are the ones I had this, in mind. Thank you. great company here. And the, hmm? Sorry? Oh, those are the ones I had in mind. Thank you for... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but, but, but then, uh, and then they're given white robes, but then, then, then there's another company who stand around the throne, and then there's this great multitude that nobody can number, etc., etc. And John is heaping one image on top of another. You know, it's like the lion who is also a lamb who has a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes and goodness knows what. Um, and I say to the students here, please don't try this at home. This is, this is not a kind of... Um, uh, a, a kit with which you can assemble a look-alike. Um, th this is how apocalyptic imagery works. It's like it's like going into you know a hall of mirrors where all the perspectives are suddenly um, different and you're seeing the same thing in several different ways and different perspectives. And 
the, the danger is we take the imagery of Revelation literally. Uh, obviously, Revelation does believe, like any good Jew would, that if God is going to raise the dead, then in the period between their bodily death and their bodily resurrection, there must be some sort of interim life. Uh, I think that the New Testament primarily addresses that question through the ongoing life of Jesus the Messiah himself and through the gift of the Spirit, that it's the Spirit who raises people from the dead so that the Spirit in the intermediate time, I think, is the way in which God holds those people in his own life rather than a platonic soul which is just going to go on whatever happens. Um, those are difficult questions, and clearly wisdom, like other Jewish books, was wrestling with them, like many Christians have wrestled with them since. But I do think that wisdom is kind of falling away towards uh, a platonic view there in a way which the New Testament itself, by and large, doesn't. Very good. Well, uh, as we come uh, towards the end here, I need to confess something, uh, namely that our, our Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, we have a faith and science podcast called The Book of Nature, Listeners, oh, you'll right. know why that, why that's important in a moment here. Uh, <laughs> Tom, you propose in this book's last chapter that considering Scripture and nature as two books blocks us from some really good lines of inquiry that open up when we think of the Scripture yes. simply as part of creation. So what are some yes. of those inquiries, and yes. do I need to ask yes. those hosts to rename their show? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand where that imagery comes from. And in some ways, it has been it has served us well. And my good friend, Francis Collins, uh, in the, the now in the White House and, and doing his DNA work and his uh, biolo biologos project, etc. He talks a lot about the two books. And I honor that I want to say, yes, Broadly speaking, we've got the Bible, we've got the scientific investigation, let them both happily proceed side by side and let them talk to one another. And in terms of practical feet on the ground agenda, yes, wonderful. It's when we stand back and say, is that actually a final adequate way of talking about um, the world of Scripture and the world of nature? I'll say, no, it really isn't, because Scripture itself comes to us from the writings and collections and liturgies of the Jewish people and the early Christians who are themselves part of the world of what we call history, which is itself part of the world of nature. Um, and so I'm driving a wedge between what I'm doing and that um, bifurcated world which says that scripture is over in one corner and nature is over in the other corner. I just think that's that's very, very misleading. And that goes back to the 18th century way, um, back to Lessing, in fact, and re-inscribes, if you're not careful, his ugly ditch and merely says that we can somehow straddle that ugly ditch. And I want to say, no, it's, it's not like that. The other thing is to do with the idea of books, that the danger with saying these are books is that uh, we, we think we can treat them like um, I've got a whole shelf which I'm looking at as I speak to you, which is uh, um, the, the, one of the big Bible dictionaries and another more modern Bible dictionary and a dictionary of quotations and a, a handbook on eschatology. And, things. and these are books that you go to to look things up in. These are, are handbooks that you go to because you want a true answer on some topic. And I want to say the Bible isn't really that sort of a book. The Bible is more like a combination 
combination of all the Shakespeare plays run together, plus Milton's Paradise Lost, plus, 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 um, all the great stories. And, and it's one huge, sprawling narrative. And of course, you can go and look up things in it, because there are plenty of places which are lists of true things or, or um, rules of life or whatever. But, but the Bible isn't primarily a book like a dictionary on the shelf that you go to to look things up in. And likewise, the world of nature isn't simply uh, a book that we can uh, pull off the shelf, look something up, and put it back again. We are all part of the book of nature. I'm a a living, breathing part of the book of nature, and so are you. Um, And so when we're looking at the book of nature, we're doing something much more mysterious than just looking something up in a book on the shelf. So, uh, I I mean, I understand how useful that image is, but I I want to probe and say, hang on, what sort of books are these? And when we do that, we discover that they have a much more interesting relationship with one another than simply sitting side by self on side by side on the shelf as two different sources of wisdom or revelation. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Tom, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. <laughs> what do you want our well, listeners thinking about natural theology, yeah. the New Testament, apocalyptic, yeah. or anything else as we enter yeah. the door? Bless you. I think I think the thing which we haven't talked about, but which is one of the many things that really made me excited about this project is in chapter seven of the book, if people have the patience to get that far, there are eight chapters, and in a sense, seven is where it really lands. In chapter seven, what I do is I fill out something I did at the beginning of my book, Simply Christian, where I take the ideas of justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty, and I add to them three more, namely freedom and truth and power, and I run the same argument, and I say, Uh, All human beings across cultures basically know in their bones that these things really matter, but also that we all get them wrong, that we do not do perfect justice, that our spirituality is exciting but lets us down, that our relationships are hugely important but we mess them up, and so on and so on and so on. Um, And we all know they matter, but we all get them wrong. And this constitutes a major puzzle. And that's what makes some people like Jean-Paul Sartre say that the whole thing is a sick joke and and this is all just misleading and, and there's nothing really there anyway. But then in the light of that, I then tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth going to the cross. And I say that when we read the story of the cross, what we see is a story of justice denied, of spirituality gone dark, of relationships gone sour because of betrayal and denial, of of freedom trampled upon, of Pilate saying what is truth, of power distorted. And and so um, the, the fascinating thing there to me is that it looks as though all those seven, justice, spirituality and the rest, might be signposts pointing up to God. The problem is they're all broken signposts, but then the amazing thing is that the story in the Bible is the story of a God who comes down and himself becomes the broken signpost, the broken signpost of the cross, which is why I believe the fact of the cross in art and music as well as in preaching, etc., reaches out across cultures to say, here in the middle of the natural world, what could be more natural in inverted commas than brutal Roman soldiers killing a young Jewish rebel in the nastiest way they knew? This is part of the real horrible world that we know. But in the middle of that, there is this signpost which says all those broken signposts that you're aware of which do in fact give meaning to your life, they all point to the ultimate broken signpost, which is the God on a cross, which 
which is Jesus himself. And that, for me, is the heart of the whole thing. Of course it is. As a Christian preacher, you'd expect me to say that. But for me, that's the heart of natural theology as well. And I know that not all theologians are going to like that because they have been taught that to do natural theology, you have to screen Jesus out of the picture. But as I've said, I think it's time to say we need to see the whole natural world, which includes history, which therefore includes Jesus, which therefore includes climactically his death on the cross. And for me, that is the point at which everything turns round. And we say now, here within the middle of history, we see who the God who made the world really is. And that to me sounds quite a lot like natural theology. N.T. Wright, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist (laughs) Profiles. Thank you very much. It's really good to talk to you again. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is History and Eschatology from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.